Dick Cavett Show. It was 1970, and feminism was a growing movement. Ms. Magazine would launch the following year. Liberation of all kinds was in the air, and confrontations were playing out in print, in films, on television. In March, Hugh Hefner was a guest on The Dick Cavett Show. Hefner's Playboy magazine was 16 years old at the time, and an American institution. And Cavett's TV talk show was itself rising in status. Ladies and gentlemen, Dick Cavett! Cavett and his producers thought it would be good TV to see how a couple of women from the movement would fare on the same stage as Hefner. Will you welcome Mr. Hugh Hefner? And it was pretty good, says Cavett. In that case, that was clearly set to be a confrontational show. Nobody can pretend otherwise. In the show, Susan Brownmiller, Sally Kempton by her side. What do you think men are doing wrong? Took on Hefner Uh, with a vengeance. They oppress us as women. They won't let us be. And Hugh Hefner is my enemy. Oh, is Hef your enemy? Uh, We really set you up tonight, didn't we? I do remember that the audience went, mmm, and ooh, and uh, wow, a few times. I'm more in sympathy than perhaps, uh, you know, the girls realize with... Women. Women. I'm sorry. Yes, I'm 35. Than the ladies realize. Then Ms. Brownmiller looked Hugh Hefner right in the eye and reimagined him in a Playboy bunny outfit. The day that you are willing to come out here with a cotton tail attached to your rear end. <laughs> that got a laugh. That got what we call a biggie. Mr. Hefner squirmed slightly and fiddled furiously with his trademark pipe. I welcomed it. I, I've always liked it on air when the ice gets thin. It was known what the target was there. Let the women have at Hugh. So here we are, almost exactly 65 years after Hugh Hefner launched Playboy magazine in 1953. At that time, magazines were even more of a reflector of society than television, which was still in its infancy. There were thousands of mags. They appeared regularly in American mailboxes for pennies a copy, with mostly glossy pages, gorgeous photographs, alluring articles. Playboy's slogan was, Entertainment for Men. And it was an instant hit, with barely any challengers to its images or its attitude toward women. It landed as only a magazine could then. Magazines in mid-century had the power to affect deeply how people thought, how they saw themselves, how they consumed products and culture, says Samir Husni, who has always been mad about American magazines. The tipping points for the magazines becoming a major force probably took place around the turn of the 20th century. Husni runs the Magazine Innovation Center at the University of Mississippi. He believes the game changer for magazines was the Ladies' Home Journal. In 1903, it became the first magazine in the United States to reach a one million circulation. An astonishing fact. Ladies' Home Journal was the pioneering magazine that changed shopping habits and associated products with lifestyle before lifestyle was even a word in the language. There was now a new mission for shoppers. So instead of going and asking for flour, now they are asking for a specific brand of flour to show their status in the society. They read this magazine so they can ask for a specific product by brand. At this point, that applied to both genders. Author Ellen Gruber-Garvey says men were requesting copies of Ladies' Home Journal from the battlefields of World War I. Now... 
Was this a way of, you know, looking at ladies' underwear ads? Possibly. But I think it also was the notion of genteel life, a whole kind of domestic life that they were away from. And this was a, a point of contact with it. Men with a craving for a genteel domestic life, how did we get from there to Playboy? It was right after World War I that the first magazines aimed at men began to appear in the U.S. Diane Hansen, who wrote a huge history of men's magazines, six thick volumes of it, says periodicals specifically intended for males had started in France years before as an offshoot of the burlesque houses, and gradually the mags came our way. In America, yeah, you go back to 1919 with um, Captain Billy's whiz-bang. Captain Billy had fought in the war, and he'd seen some of those French publications. He had the idea to create an American counterpart. And really it was just a very mild, uh, kind of racist, sexist humor magazine with very little illustration. The first issue of the Whizbang was a single sheet of paper with some dirty military jokes. But it was the beginning. What had led to all this, though, in the early 1800s, was actually the invention of the bicycle. That revolutionary vehicle provided a new life and a new look for women. The end of elaborate petticoats, a leggier, more revealing silhouette. Then illustrators captured the style. Life magazine, in an early humorous version, first published in 1883, introduced Charles Dana Gibson's striking woman with an hourglass figure, the so-called Gibson girl, pictured in many roles and poses. These were characters who were created out of the ideal white American woman. Design historian and author Stephen Heller. And they could sell just about anything. Later, in the years before the Second World War, more risque illustrations known as pinup girls emerged. And two artists in particular, George Petty and Alberto Vargas, were standouts in the pages of a new magazine, Esquire. Its tagline, The Magazine for Men. I lived in this little town called Waxahachie, south of Dallas. Film director and writer Robert Benton of Kramer vs. Kramer fame was young and magazine-obsessed. He read all of them, or at least looked at them. Magazines were a lifeline to what was going on outside of this small town in Texas where I grew up. And in those days, in Texas, you could go to a magazine shop and stand there for half an hour reading and nobody would bother you. Benton became art director of Esquire in the late 50s, after the magazine had changed dramatically. But in its early days... Esquire was a racy magazine that had good literature. And racy magazines those days were very tame. Tame, by our standards, though it may have been, Esquire's look and tone were set by those suggestive Petty and Vargas pinup girls. Stephen Heller reminds us that Vargas was also commissioned to do cigarette ads which put particular images into our heads. Where you'd have some old sugar daddy-like character fawning over a young, beautiful character. So there was this acceptance, this validation, and this longing for that ideal that somebody who's rumply, ugly, but rich could have anything he wanted in the sexual arena. Those illustrations, their depictions of women and sometimes rumply rich men, were a major force in the 30s into the 40s. Everyone knew the Petty Girls and the Varga Girls. These two guys, and Vargas in particular, were rock stars or uber rock stars. They were Mick Jaggers of their time. And 
anything that had something of theirs in it was going to become gold. And certainly through World War II, pinups had an even grander mission. That's when having one on your wall became a matter of patriotic pride. As males and females separated to play mostly very different roles in the war, the Army supplied pinup photos by the truckload to enlisted men to keep them focused on friendly, scantily clad females, says Diane Hansen. Let's consider the origin of the word pinup. Pornography would be hidden under the mattress. A pinup went on the wall. That's why it was called a pinup. It was an idealized image of the woman that you were going to go home to. She wasn't naked. They were your girlfriend, your surrogate girlfriend. And you could put it out for the whole world to see, and you could dream about this girl. The one that comes to mind is the famous pinup of Betty Grable, blonde chorus girl turned movie star, known as the girl with the million dollar legs. In the photograph, her back is to the camera, her head turning to look over her shoulder. Yeah, you didn't see a whole lot there. She's wearing a one-piece bathing suit. And the reason that that was the most popular pinup was simply because they printed five million copies of it and distributed them free worldwide. Young Hugh Hefner in the Army in the early 40s was watching all this very closely. He was a huge fan of the Vargas pinups. And the culture of pinups and magazines expanded to the big screen in the film Du Barry Was a Lady in 1943. In fact, that movie musical with Red Skelton and Lucille Ball really became a blueprint for Hefner, already dreaming about his own magazine. When I buy an Esquire, it had an Esquire song. The Bible of the well-dressed man. It mentioned the so-called Varga Girls. If you don't love a Varga girl, You'd laugh out loud at Whistler's mother. But even more, it had introduced the idea of a new girl for every month. So Esquire's blend of intellect and skin, and what you might call the girl of the month club, would find their way into Hefner's Playboy magazine a little later. Hefner had already started to experiment with some of these elements in college after he got out of the Army. It was at the University of Illinois in the late 40s that he put together a magazine with a co-ed of the month, lifted right from that favorite movie of his. Hefner went to work briefly at Esquire, but by that time, the early 1950s, the world had changed, and so had that magazine, says Robert Benton. Esquire dropped the pinups and did a modern redesign. They turned that magazine into a young man's magazine, into a post-World War II magazine. And it sort of, to my mind, laid out the territory that magazines were going to occupy. Not Hugh Hefner's magazine. In the face of their reinvention, Hefner left Esquire and famously hocked his furniture and took out small loans to put together the first issue of Playboy in his kitchen. Some of the money went to purchase unpublished photos of Marilyn Monroe, one of which he used to create his first centerfold, soon to become the famous feature Playmate of the Month. He used another Monroe photo for the cover. There was certainly no risk in that. After all, by 1953, she'd become a marketable star with a sexy, daffy blonde image in films like How to Marry a Millionaire and Gentlemen Prefer Blondes. But square cut or pear shape, these rocks don't lose their shape. Diamonds 
But looking around at other magazines in the year 1953, Monroe's picture was also on the cover of People Today, as well as Movie Life, Focus, Photoplay, Look, Silver Screen, Motion Picture, Pageant, and Brief magazine. Not to mention Movie Stars, Tempo, Life, and TV Digest, all in that one year. So what did Playboy add to the formula? They had the nude on the inside. That nude that they bought from a calendar company for a small sum of money had already been circulated and had sold reasonably well, but it had been shot at least a year before. And it was a matter of exquisite timing that everyone else may have had her on the cover, but only Hefner had her inside in a state of undress. Not to mention the articles of distinction, which many said were the only reason they ever picked up Playboy in the first place. In the years to come, Playboy would establish a certain attitude in its visual images, its language, even its own music, all of which helped the brand make its mark. That's coming up in part two. I'm Al Letson from Reveal, and I want to tell you about our new investigative series. It's about drug rehabs that profit by putting people to work for no pay. To me, it was like slave labor. It's been called a cult. They had pig masks on. Yeah, we brainwash them because their brain is dirty. Unpaid workers trapped in the gears of a rehab machine. American Rehab, available now in your Reveal podcast feed. In this post-war atmosphere, 1953, advertising exploding, consumerism rampant, Playboy struck a chord with men almost instantly. Hefner himself had been through what millions of other American men had experienced, and the magazine was for them. I mean, we had come out of World War II, which opened up so many doors. Men wanted their freedom, and they wanted easy access, and they didn't want to be placed in boxes and being monogamous was no longer the virtue it once was that it came off as such on television but you know that was the conflict that was the tension between what men really wanted what did women really want the culture said husbands women's magazines like women's day and family circle placed women squarely in the home hefner reinforced the distinction We want to make clear from the very start, he wrote in his introduction to the first ever issue of Playboy, we aren't a family magazine. If you're somebody's sister, wife, or mother-in-law and picked us up by mistake, please pass us along to the man in your life and get back to your lady's home companion. Men's magazines in the period immediately after World War II were almost all outdoor-oriented. They were connected to some extent in the bonding, in the male bonding that came out of the war. Hefner explained the Playboy magazine origin story to Terry Gross in 1999. He noted that pulpy adventure magazines for men about hunting, fishing, and other sportsmanlike outdoor activities were not at all what he had in mind. And what I tried to create was a a magazine for uh, the indoor guy, but focused specifically on uh, the single life. In other words, the period of bachelorhood before you settle down. And uh, that magazine or that concept for a magazine was a revelation. 
Another revelation was the girl-next-door idea. Hefner was very aware that this had to be something new. It had to have its own look, its own visual vocabulary. After all, there were already magazines with revealing and suggestive photos of women. But those were professionals. Playboy introduced the naked girl next door. Hefner wrote, The Playmate of the Month isn't a sophisticated New York model or a Hollywood starlet. She's the girl next door au naturel. And looking very nice, thank you. And that made the distinction he was looking for, what Diane Hansen calls that special Playboy feel. Which is getting to see a woman naked who you could never see naked under any other circumstances. That was what Playboy gave you. That's what the girl next door was. And as Playboy got more successful, she wasn't just the girl next door who wouldn't take her clothes off for anyone else. She was the girl with the amazing natural body, the beautiful face, a kind of alpha specimen. And there was one more thing, and that was to instruct men in how to find and pin these specimens like butterflies. Hugh Hefner's real brilliance was to make a magazine for nerds, to make a magazine that postulated that you didn't have to be a he-man, you didn't have to have muscles, you didn't have to be able to wrestle a bear or drive a sports car or hold a bottle of whiskey in your stomach in order to be a man, that you could do it through consumerism. You could buy the right records, the hi-fi, read books, and make canapes. And that all of these things could make you a playboy. A possibly very slight playboy in black silk pajamas and a dark red silk bathrobe. Time now for everybody's favorite guessing game, What's My Line? It may help in understanding how this landed in the culture to know about the male image that had come just before it in every popular magazine, newspaper, circular, and pamphlet. Will you come in and sign in, please? Because in the 30s and 40s, the man everybody wanted to be, the man who was the model of muscular masculinity, was Charles Atlas. Is what you do in some way physical? Yes. His wildly successful ad slogan, I was a 97-pound weakling, accompanied his photo everywhere in print. By the time he'd built himself up to earn the title of the world's most perfectly developed man, he was the picture of strength, tall with big shoulders, biceps, chest, and abdomen, hard as a rock, and perfectly developed. Yes. Are you Charles Atlas? Yes. Put that photograph of Atlas, typically posed with nothing on but a pair of tight-fitting trunks, on one side. On the other, put a picture of Hugh Hefner, only a few years later, an urban guy in silk pajamas and a bathrobe who loved jazz and Picasso. Like so many things at that post-war moment, it was a complete turnaround. But to many, it was a welcome one, says Barbara Ehrenreich, whose book The Hearts of Men is a study of what she calls men's flight from commitment in that period. Men wanted to escape. And this was true of a lot of guys who came back from World War II. They had a harrowing experience in many cases, but it was also a great adventure. And what that seemed to lead to was this bland, repetitive life in an office. The man in the gray flannel suit is a story of that kind of evolution for a man. The Man in the Gray Flannel Suit was a best-selling book by Sloan Wilson, filmed in 1956. And it's not just that he's bound to his family, he's uh, bound to his corporation. But a man's got plenty of security, 
money in the bank, other jobs waiting for him. It's a cinch to be fearless and full of integrity. But when he's got a wife and three children to support, and his job's all he's got, what do you think he ought to do about it then? Movies like Patterns and Executive Suite told corporate stories of men trapped in boardrooms. The male conflict between flight and obligation was everywhere in the mainstream culture. And men felt trapped in other ways, too. Remember, in the 1950s and 60s, you could not be homosexual. That would be a kind of nonconformity that was completely impermissible. It might look suspicious for a man to be single. I mean, after a certain age, say, well, why aren't you married? Out of this comes uh, Hugh Hefner. He came along with a remarkable message in the 50s, and he said, men, you don't have to do what you're told. What you're told is to grow up and be a breadwinner for some woman. And he said, men, why do you put up with that? What do you get out of that? Spend your money on yourself, guys. So to a lot of people, males in particular, it was a kind of men's liberation. Now, this is before women's liberation. This is before the revival of feminism. You have this rebellion by men. Hefner wasn't the only example. Uh, There's a long tradition in American culture and literature and folklore of the man who strikes off by himself, the man who goes west with no family, the man who makes his own way, Huck Finn and, you know, what goes on in Moby Dick. I mean, if men are going to have great and glorious adventures, they can't be, uh, you know, just trudging around making paychecks and turning them over to their wives. Hello there. Glad you could join us this evening. I'm Hugh Hefner, editor-publisher of Playboy magazine, and your host. By the late 50s, Playboy was more than a magazine. It was a phenomenon, a major brand with its own theme song for its own TV show, promoting, among other things, bachelorhood, as well as bachelor pads, bachelor pad music, wardrobe items, cocktails, and gadgets. Men could have it all without losing face, without seeming irresponsible. In 1960, the first Playboy Club opened in Chicago, and the whole atmosphere, in media at least, was positively clubby. Movies like The Tender Trap framed marriage as something women wanted and men did not. I mean, a woman isn't really a woman at all until she's been married and had children. Even if men may have succumbed in the end. Why don't you lay off me? All you married guys are alike. Just because you're hooked, you want everybody else to be hooked. Meanwhile, in the magazines, Gloria Steinem went undercover as a Playboy bunny and wrote a celebrated expose in two parts in 1963. The story in Show Magazine, A Bunny's Tale, created a sensation. Remember... We were coming out of a culture which saw women as objects. What Gloria Steinem did was she went into this role of being a kind of an object, and then she spoke, (laughs) which objects are not supposed to do. And that was a powerful thing. The selective power of magazines was extraordinary. And that was in Show Magazine, a magazine that didn't last very long, but that in itself, I think it drove the first nail into Hugh Hefner's coffin. 
though the Steinem series didn't impede Playboy's progress toward a circulation of 5.6 million by the 1970s. And at that point, the women's movement was in full swing. Playboy had continued success until the rise of the Internet, when men could easily search for naked women and get instant results. So the magazine wrestled with the question of nudity in its pages. The nudity was out for a while, but then in again, once they realized it wasn't just the articles. Nudity was a big part of its identity, as was its celebrity editor and publisher. Playboy was a very personal ma- It was Hefner's personal magazine. Everything you loved, everything you didn't like, it was Hefner's. It belonged to him, nobody else. It became a pulse of some big part of America at that time. And talk about identity. Take that Hefner look, the bathrobe. It turns out that Hugh Hefner spent a good deal of time in his childhood reading Sir Arthur Conan Doyle's Sherlock Holmes mysteries. They were among his favorites. And a feature of them is Holmes's fondness for his pipe and bathrobe, or dressing gown in his world. Hefner, by the time he reached his later years, had a bevy of simultaneous live-in blondes and spent much of his time puffing on a pipe in his very familiar robe, the image of which has now come right up to date. He opened the door in his bathrobe. Only to find him wearing a bathrobe. Bathrobes, massages, I mean, really ugly Walking around naked in his bathrobe. In an open bathrobe. Showed up at Powell's hotel room in only a bathrobe. The bathrobe incident. uh, Entered the room in a bathrobe. Not that a bathrobe is equal to abuse, but certainly that robe became the symbol of wealth, relaxation, and for Hefner, eternal readiness, you might say, for the girl of the following month, perhaps. And the spirit of it found its way right into those glossy pages. So, for an entrepreneur in the middle of the 20th century, one way to make your mark was to have a magazine. Hef, as they called him, made his mark and more. He was the personification of a certain brand of entitled masculine power and attitude. His Playboy magazine suggested that the girl next door was available for sex on demand, given the right props. And he provided a model for men, many of whom, not least our own Playboy president, still live by his message that they can and should take anything and anybody they want. On Notes from America, we have conversations with people across the country about how we can truly become the nation that we claim to be. Each week, we talk about race, our politics, education, relationships, usually all of them, because everything's connected. And you, our listeners, are at the center of those conversations. I'm Kai Wright. Join me on Notes from America, wherever you get your podcasts. 